Well, starting on somewhat of a light note this morning, in Tolkien's uh, book, The Hobbit, right at the beginning of the story, yes, uh uh-huh, Uh, The wizard Gandalf comes through the quiet lands of the Shire to Bilbo Baggins' home at Bag End. Do you guys remember this? Are you picturing it? Big green door, hole in the hill, you know, all that. And he says to Bilbo, who's sitting out front, uh, smoking pipe weed, blowing smoke rings, he says, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure. And he says, uh, it's difficult to find anyone. And Bilbo says, I should think so in these parts. We are plain, quiet folk. We have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. We don't want any adventures here. Thank you. Bilbo Baggins wanted nothing to do with adventures because they were disruptive and they were uncomfortable. And you know, most of us sitting in this room this morning, we're a little bit like Bilbo, aren't we? That is, we want life to be either quiet or semi-quiet, and we want to sit on our porch blowing our smoke rings, or we want to sit at our table drinking our coffee, or whatever your picture is of quiet and ease. That's sort of the lifestyle most of us aspire to at some level. Uh, The trouble is the world that we live in isn't really set up for this kind of life. And of course, Bilbo Baggins finds out his isn't either. If you remember historically, not very far back, uh, Neville Chamberlain was the Prime Minister of England in the 30s. And Hitler, you know, post-World War I, Germany had rebuilt, and this little guy, uh, um, Adolf Hitler, had risen up as leader of Germany and began threatening, basically, Europe and England. And so Chamberlain went and had a sit-down, a face-to-face, and came back and naively told England and the world that we'll have peace in our time peace in our days. And of course now today the world looks back at Chamberlain and says, how naive could you be? You know, if we give Hitler this little chunk of land in Europe, we'll have peace. And it was uh, misleading at best. It was naive on his part. We know that today. And World War II, of course, is what followed. The unhappy truth for us today, just like pre-World War II Europe, is that not only is war coming, The truth is you and I live in a war. We live in a battle zone on planet Earth, and we have since the fall. Uh, We are in a place, in an arena, if you will, in which there's been an ongoing battle or fight or war since the fall between heaven and hell and between Satan and his fallen angels and God. And the arena all this takes place in is the Earth and its humanity on the Earth. So that's the arena we're in this morning. We're picking this theme up in Genesis 3. If you remember the last time we were in the account of the judgment or the curse, that passage in Genesis 3 where God addresses Satan, Eve, and Adam, we bypassed verses 14 and 15 last time and we're going to pick those up this morning. Genesis 3.14, God says, remember this is after the fall, the temptation, the fall has occurred, God's addressing them. God addresses the serpent here. God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, that is the temptation in the fall, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, dust you will eat all the days of your life. Cursed are you more than all other animals. Remember that at the fall, not only did Adam and Eve 
begin this experience of death. Remember, God said, you'll die if you eat. So they experienced death spiritually immediately. But also this principle of death became part of the experience of the world. So all of the earth and all animal life and all plant life, all life on the earth is cursed now. But God says to the serpent, you're cursed more than any other form of life on the earth. He says, on your belly will, you will go, dust you will eat all your life. <clears throat> you know, if you look in the scriptures, when you're talking about someone eating dust, it's a picture of defeat, right? It's abject defeat or poverty. All I've got left is the dust of the earth. <clears throat> We've talked about this before, but I'll just mention again, we're not really sure what this means as far as Satan specifically and the serpent. That is, did Satan, the spiritual being, inhabit a physical creature on the earth and then speak through him? Do you know what I mean? What, what exactly was the connection between Satan, a spiritual being, and the physical being and the curse that takes place here? Some suggest that the Hebrew term, term in verse 1, crafty, can also connote uh, shining. And their thought is that whatever the serpent looked like before, it was uh, not like a serpent today, that the serpent was the shining a physically, visually attractive animal and that literally its physical shape was changed from the curse on so that it became a serpent as we think of today, something that crawls on the earth. We're not sure of this entirely. <clears throat> that the serpent is Satan though or is directly connected to Satan is clear from Revelation 12, 9 where we read the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. John tells us in Revelation there's no doubt who the serpent is. It is Satan. We're not sure exactly what all this means. Satan before the curse, Satan after the curse, the serpent physically, Satan spiritually. Not sure how all that fits together. But God's saying here, you're cursed more than any other creature on the earth. We're moving from 14 to 15 rather quickly because this is where we're going to hang our hat with the remainder of our time. Verse 15, the, for us anyway, the more important part of this curse or judgment passage. Verse 15, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Enmity, our English word, and I'm not sure depending on what your translation is, how else that may be translated, but enmity is from Anglo-French and it just means enemy. I'll make you enemies. And the Hebrew, ayab, is translated in other areas of the Old Testament as hostility. So God says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Uh, remember, life on the earth would have been peaceful before this. And God says, now there's going to be hostility. It's going to be ongoing. It's going to be between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. And we'll talk about seed here in just a little bit. But you see this hostility then beginning basically immediately following this passage throughout the rest of the Bible and history. We'll look later at the fact that ultimately the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. And the seed of the serpent sounds a little confusing, is Satan himself because the rest of the verse basically tells us her seed will crush your seed and we know in the end Jesus crushes Satan. So ultimately the seed of the woman is the Messiah, it's Jesus, it's the one God promises will come and bring redemption. But before that time, before Jesus comes and since, you still see this warfare carried out by Satan and his followers 
and Eve's descendants, and it's played out through humans on the earth and fallen angels at least and the influence they bring on the earth. So think of this. Immediately following the story of the fall and the curse, we get into the story of Cain and Abel. Two different children of Eve. So they're both physically, they're seeds of Eve, they're descendants of Eve. But what happens in that story right away? Cain rises up and kills Abel. Cain murders his brother Abel. And in 1 John 3.12, we have a New Testament take on that murder. John says this, Don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, right away, with this first generation of children that comes from Eve, John says, one belonged to Satan. One is evil, given to evil, the follower of Satan. And he rises up and murders his brother who does righteousness. This is the conflict spoken of in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the serpent in hostility or animus or enmity with the seed of Eve. And this becomes... It's the battle between Satan and his followers and Jesus and his followers, both before Jesus comes physically to the earth and afterwards. Or if you go to Genesis 11, sometimes these stories aren't blunt as far as what's actually happening. But in Genesis 11, a guy named Nimrod uh, rises up and builds some cities in the east. And one of the cities he builds is Babel, Babel, Babel. And Babel, as you know, is the place that tries to build a tower to reach to heaven to make a name for themselves so they won't be dispersed around the earth. And even though it doesn't say so directly here, this work, this labor, this tower, it's in opposition to God. It's man putting his fist in God's face saying, we're going to make our own name. We're going to identify ourselves. We're going to create our own religious system. Of course, this is what they do. Babel becomes Babylon. And then you read about Babylon through the rest of the scriptures. Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 50 and 51 are key ones. But then the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, two long chapters dealing with only this one entity, Babylon, when it's destroyed by God. It's not clear, by the way, uh, you'll see varying arguments on this, if Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18 is literally the city Babylon, uh, which, by the way... Who's our guy that was executed in Iraq? Saddam Hussein had visions of grandeur and he was rebuilding literally the city of Babylon. He had rebuilt the Lion's Gate. He took people from around the world, showed them because his aspiration was to have a new Nebuchadnezzar type world empire out of Iraq. Um, So whether it's literally modern day Babylon or whether it's what appears to be the religious political group entity that's part of these end days conflict, this Babel, this Babylon is seen throughout the scriptures and history as this effort of Satan against God and his work. And by the way, in the Revelation passage, you have the destruction of this entity that God calls a harlot that is morally polluted right before God introduces the bride of Christ The real version, does this make sense? That is that there's a professing entity that that espouses to be uh, the reigning queen of the earth and God does away with her before he shows you the real bride of the lamb. 
She's clean and white. The harlot is clothed and drinks the blood of the saints. So anyway, just to say, you see this theme throughout the Bible. As soon as this curse passage is over, you see this enmity or this hostility between those who belong to God and those who are following Satan. You know, can you imagine if uh, I got on the news this morning and said and called names or mentioned groups or whatever and said that they are followers of Satan? What would the response be in our culture? It'd be like, you know, you're wacky. Do you really believe in a man in a red suit? Do you really believe that, that somehow you're morally superior to these other people? Do you really believe that you can call them evil or that you can really say they're followers of Satan? And, and you know, frankly, the Bible says resoundingly, yes, yes, yes. You have to. And in fact, uh, we'll mention this later, you know, part of the enemy's great uh, work of hatred against us is deception. So, I mean, if you can convince the world you don't exist and you just quietly plot your war, I mean, you're doing great. And, And frankly, the enemy's been quite successful at that. The truth is all of us, there's a war, heaven against hell, the earth is the arena in which it takes place. And everyone born into this earth is born into the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of darkness. Paul says in Colossians 1.13, speaking of Christians in Christ, He, Jesus Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We don't work to get into the kingdom of darkness. We're born there. Does that make sense? We don't consciously have to choose to go there. That's where we start. We tend to think we're morally neutral agents on the earth. We're not. We have evil hearts given to evil because we are evil. We're deficient because our parents chose sin and death and that's what they gave us all the way on down. So when we're born, we don't choose good or evil. We start evil. We don't choose God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom. We're born in Satan's kingdom. Unless we're delivered from the domain of darkness, that is what we are. It is where we live. It is the side of the war we're on. You know, in Hitler's Germany of World War II, if you were a German living in Germany, as far as the Allies were concerned, what were you? You're the enemy because you're in the enemy camp. That's true for us, born in the earth today, born under sin, born in the domain, Paul says, the domain of darkness. So God says to Eve and to Adam and to the serpent, there's going to be enmity, there's going to be hostility and hatred between these two camps. And you see this lived out primarily in two ways, both in the Bible and through secular history. One is this, the upfront persecution of followers of Christ by followers of Satan, outright opposition, persecution. And the other is the use of imitation and deception uh, to lead those who follow God astray. This is where you, you live in the, where Satan's followers pretend to be something they're not so that they can affect those who are trying to follow Christ. And related to persecution, Cain killing Abel would certainly be the first of this. But you don't go further, Genesis 21.9, when you see the same thing happening again. Uh, Abraham's promised a child of promise, you remember, and he tries to do things on his own, and he has through Hagar a son named Ishmael, hoping that he can do God's work for him. But later, no, God says to Sarah, you're going to have a son, and she does, and his name's Esau, Isaac, laughter. And when Isaac is born, Ishmael, in Genesis 21.9, mocks 
That's the term, that's the English term, mocks Isaac. Now, if you and I read this and I said one of my children mocked the other, it doesn't sound like that big a deal. But listen to Paul's take in Galatians 4.29 on this. As at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that would be Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that would be Isaac, so it is now also. Galatians' context is a little different because it's talking about Judaism primarily, as we did in Sunday school class this morning, persecuting the Messianic Jews, the religious order persecuting the new religious order, if you will, or that's what it looked like in Galatia. But Paul looks back and says, Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. The child born of the flesh to a slave was persecuting the child of promise. So when Sarah said to Abraham, get rid of the maid and her son, Abraham says, I I don't want to do that. God tells Abraham, that's the thing to do. That's what I want you to do. By the way, the descendants of Ishmael have been persecuting the descendants literally and physically, the descendants of Isaac ever since. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual battle. I assume that Hitler's persecution of the Jews in World War II was spiritually, satanically motivated because Satan has read the Bible and knows that God has a promised future for ethnic national Israel that hasn't happened. This is hard to get around. Some people will tell you that Israel is a nation. Ethnic Israel has no future. And and if that's true, you've got to throw out all kinds of prophecy out of the Old Testament because they've never been fulfilled. And if the Bible can be taken in any sense literally, the nation of Israel has a future. Satan knows that. So World War II, why would Hitler pick out the Jews? Why did the communists under Stalin pick out the Jews? Why do people throughout history and various geographies pick out the Jews? Why is that? In fact, if you do any study on Islam today, and I don't want to be one politically correct or two insensitive, but... um, We've we've studied this in Sunday school class. Many, many, many Muslims are trained from childhood to hate Jews and to desire nothing more than the destruction of the nation of Israel. This isn't something I'm making up. I'm not anti-Muslim. I hope God continues to save many, many Muslims as He saved you and me. But Islam as a system routinely teaches its adherents to hate Jews and Israel. Why is that? And not just to hate, but the degree of hatred is, at some level, it's irrational. It's not sane. It's not tied to reality. If you say, what in the world could motivate this kind of implacable, insane hatred? I'd say, Satan does. That it's spiritual. That the force and the energy behind this is spiritual. It's exactly what God said would happen in Genesis 3.15. It's the hostility between Satan and his seed, his followers, and the seed of the woman and his followers. That's exactly what it is. So if you look at history too, why do communists pick on Christians and Jews? In Korea today, understood now pretty much to be the worst country in the world as far as persecution, the persecution of Christians is taking place by a man who calls himself God. This is is not accidental. There's spiritual energy behind this. It's Genesis 3, 15. It's with us today. So there's direct opposition and persecution. There's also impersonation or imitation or deception. So in Jesus' day, 
In John 8, which also someone mentioned in Sunday school this morning, Sean, in John 8, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the day. These are the respected men in the nation of Israel. These are the guys who lead the temple worship, right? And what does Jesus say to them? You're of your father, the devil, John 8, 44. You want to do the desires of your father. He's calling them the seed of Satan, the children of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. It doesn't stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. Verse 47, he was of God. Here's the words of God. For this reason, you don't hear them because you're not of God. Now, just let that sink in for a second. If I named a church in Topeka or Kansas or the United States and said those leaders are the seed of Satan, that's what Jesus is saying here about the people that the nation looked up to, the religious leaders. This is opposition by imitation and deception. They say they're followers of God. They say they speak for God. Jesus says, no, you're children of the devil. You are the seed of Satan. That's what he's saying here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 14, and he's speaking of leaders in the church in Corinth. When he says this, he says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Part of the hostility and the animus and part of the warfare um, tactics of Satan goes beyond mere frontal opposition and persecution. It goes into deception and imitation. It's to join the ranks of those who say they're followers of God, the seed of the woman, so that you can lead them astray. And I assume that we're no different than the church was in Corinth, and I assume that we're no different than the church was, the synagogue, the temple, was in Jesus' day. That the church, that is, that churches in this world today who call themselves Christians or associated with Christ, some of them are led by false apostles. And we'll talk about the test at the end here this morning. We'll talk about the test. John John tells us in 1 John 4 what the test is to determine which side you're on. It's not hard. But guys, don't you think that if there were deceitful leaders in their day, there probably are in ours? So that if somebody tells you they're a Christian, they're a Christian leader, they're part of the Jesus Seminar... It's meaningless. In the end, you say, what do they say about Christ? What do they say about Jesus Christ? That is the test. That's the answer to the question, by the way, that we'll get to in a little bit. But it's, it's hostility and it's a warfare tactic through imitation and deception. Jesus said in Matthew 13, he tells that story and he says, you know, the master went out and sowed his, seed, his field with the seed of wheat And then the workers come in and they say, Master, something's happened because the wheat's coming up, but there are weeds in the wheat. Do you remember that? And Jesus says, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The weeds are people. And the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Jesus says, no, don't try and pull them out because you'll do more harm than good. But it's assumed, Jesus says, that within the crop of people who profess to be followers of God, there will be weeds in the wheat. There will be followers of Satan among the followers of God. It's a given. It's a given. In a future day, hasn't happened yet, Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, uh, Paul says, there's one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power 
and signs and false wonders. Paul says there's a day coming when what he calls the man of sin rises up. And it's interesting that preceding this verse it says, uh, God's going to give them over to delusion. God's going to let them believe lies. And do you know why? It says because they didn't receive the love of the truth. God presented the truth. They said, no thanks. And so God says, well, if you want lies, then you can have them. And along comes this person we would call the Antichrist. And he comes with signs and false wonders. He has great power and he claims to speak in the name of God. He claims to be Christ. And guess what? The world is going to go after him. It's deception. It's warfare by imitation and deception. And it's going to get worse, not better, in the future. So God says there's going to be this animus, this hatred, this hostility between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. And sometimes it's frontal persecution and opposition. Sometimes it's by imitation and deception. But it's been taking place since Genesis 3 through the followers of Satan and through the followers of God. Okay? Now, going back to verse 15 directly, verse 15 is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news. The first good news. Because in it, not only in this passage do we learn about this hostility, but it's the first time God gives a direct reference to say He's going to send a Savior, a Messiah to the world. He's going to save the world from from Satan and sin and death. So when God says the seed of the woman, that's a direct reference to Jesus Christ. It's direct reference, the first direct reference to the Savior God would send to the world. In Galatians 3.16, Paul's talking about a covenant God made with Abraham. But he says this, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, that is plural, referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, singular, that is Christ. When Paul looks back at the promise to Abraham, he said when God used the term and to your seed, he meant it singularly. The seed is Christ specifically. And when we talk this morning in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman, ultimately it's meant to be Singular, just like this Galatians 3 passage about the promise to Abraham, the seed of the woman isn't primarily the physical descendants of Eve who choose to follow God. The seed of the woman is ultimately the person of Jesus Christ, the Savior God would send for the world. Verse 15 says that the serpent would bruise you on the heel, the seed of Eve, and the seed of Eve would bruise the serpent on the head. That is in this conflict. At some point, when the singular descendant of Eve comes, he is going to bruise Satan on the head. He's going to deal Satan a crushing or a death blow. When he does that, he is going to be bruised also. It's not going to be, ultimately, I want to be careful the way I say this, to death. Uh, it'll, be, it'll hurt and it'll be a real wound, but it won't be destructive ultimately in the end. And this, both of these points come back to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus really dies on the cross. He, he really is dead when they put him in the grave. So I, I want to make sure we're not saying that he's not dead. He really dies on the cross. And if you remember, Satan enters Judas. Satan is trying to, in his hostility, in this warfare against God and God's Christ, the seed of the woman, 
He's trying to get rid of Jesus. So he enters Judas, John's Gospel tells us. He's behind the Pharisees crucifying Jesus because he's trying to get rid of the opposition. So you could say very directly in the sense, Satan bruises Jesus' heel. He's behind, as far as his motivation and his planning went, he's behind the crucifixion. Of course, he doesn't know God's also behind the crucifixion for a different purpose and to a different end. But the crucifixion and the resurrection are the bruise to the serpent and the bruise to the Messiah, the seed of the woman. In Hebrews 2, 14, and and I'll just read a few, there are verses that tell us directly Jesus came to do away with Satan. In other words, if we read something like John 3, 16, Jesus came to die for the sins of the world so we could be saved. That's true. But there's also a series of verses that say very specifically Jesus came to do away with Satan and his work. So Hebrews 2, 14 says, Jesus took on flesh and blood so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus came to the earth to remove power from the devil. Or 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. And Colossians 2, 15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Let me just say briefly about this. Um, When Jesus died on the cross, he died as a substitute for Adam. So there's a sense in which when Jesus died on the cross, Adam's line ended. And if Adam's line ended, the one God who gave Adam the right to rule the earth, his rule ended. Are you with me so far? And that means that if Adam, while he was the ruler of the earth, gave that rulership over to Satan, what happens when Jesus dies? Satan's claim to be the the sole and appropriate right ruler of the earth, it ends also. Does this make sense? In Jesus, Adam is summarily dead. And his claim, his, his rightful claim to the earth is over. So that when Jesus rises from the dead as the second Adam, he has a new claim on the earth as the rightful heir of this earth. In Revelation 10, I wouldn't be too emphatic on this, but there's an angelic personage who takes an open scroll and he stands with one foot on the sea and one foot on the earth and he has a mighty shout to heaven. And the description of the angel parallels very closely the description of Jesus himself. And my take of the angel in Revelation 10 is this. It's Jesus Christ standing on the earth with the deed, if you will, to the right to rule the earth. And he stands back on his property and says, I'm taking back what's mine. Through my crucifixion and death, Adam's line ended. I'm the new Adam. I'm the rightful heir to the earth. And I'm kicking out the usurper ruler, Satan. I've come to do away with Satan, his power, his rule, and his kingdom. So Jesus is bruised in his crucifixion by the enemy, but Satan's right to rule the earth is over. It's ended judicially, righteously before God. Christ can now come in, take over the rule of the world because it's rightly now his. He's the heir, it's his. Now, you know, if you live in the earth today, 
that Jesus has not executed this will. Uh, he's not put this into full effect, has he? Because Satan's still prowling on the earth. First Peter 5, you know, be alert, your adversary, the one that hates you, the one that seeks harm against you, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, to destroy. He's still doing that today. Or Romans 16, 20, God says through Paul to the church at Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Same picture. You're going to crush the serpent under your feet. But guess what? It hasn't happened yet. It's not over. Eventually, you do see Satan's ultimate demise in the book of Revelation. And by the way, the Sunday school study, you know, that last book of the Bible, it's really all about the end of this war. Isn't it? Because you see the battle between heaven and earth, it heats up. It's kind of like D-Day. It's this huge invasion. And Revelation 19 is a king in a robe on a white horse. And it says he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he comes back to claim the earth and to set up his rule with a rod of iron. The book of Revelation is the end of the story of this hostility begun in Genesis 3.15. So that it says eventually, Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end of the hostility. The wound, if you will, has been dealt, but the death or the, or the claim on the will, so to speak, hasn't been discharged yet, but it will be. It will be. Related to that test, <clears throat> if I want to know which side of the battle lines I'm on, whose army am I in, which kingdom do I live in, this is the test, John says. 1 John 4, 1 through 3, <clears throat> John says there, don't believe every spirit. And when this says spirit, uh, it doesn't mean just, it doesn't mean a spirit speaks out of the cloud. It means anyone who espouses a teaching or a doctrine. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. John says that's the test. What does that person, what does that church, what does that teaching, whoever, whatever it is, what do they say about the person and the work of Jesus Christ? That's the test. If you tell me uh, Jesus isn't God, I know which army you're in. I know who you're following. If you tell me Jesus isn't God or He didn't die for the sins of the world or we don't need redemption, I'd tell you, I know whose army you're in. You're telling me. John says right here, it's the confession of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the badge, if you will, on the suits of those who belong to Christ. And if it's not there, you don't belong to Christ, period. Those who espouse what Paul calls elsewhere another, another gospel, they don't belong to Christ. It's the confession of who is Jesus Christ, what has He done. That's the determination. This is not hard. This is pretty easy. That's, that's the determining factor that decides, it shows, it reveals which side you're on, which army you're in. Why is it then, if this is all true, why is it that it's so easy for you and I to forget that we're in a war do you know what I mean? I'm thinking about this passage on the front end of preparation, and I just think, 
you know, the truth is, I kind of like the quiet view of life, sipping my coffee in my window, you know, mowing my yard, and life is good. Comfort, the warm blanket, the cool fall mornings. I, I think I like comfort as much as about anybody. Uh, so I realize I get lulled into the sense that this is the world and this is life as it is. It's comfort, it's ease, it's, it's pleasures, it's a semi-quiet yet satisfying life. We, we're like Bilbo blowing smoke rings while dragons are still at large in the world. That's the deal. Bilbo thought his world was the safe, quiet corner of the Shire. And it's only later that he realizes he's really a small part of a much larger story and that the only reason that the Shire was a quiet, peaceful place was because other people were defending its borders from the evil that would otherwise have come in. And, you know, the truth is, you and I sort of, not really, but you and I sort of, we can enjoy certain things in the world because we have the time and the means. But it's not as if Satan's not alive and well in our world, too, through deception at least and imitation, if not outright persecution. We suffer very little outright persecution in this earth, in our corner of the world, but it's certainly going on. What do we do? First is this, remember that you are in an adventure. It doesn't matter if you want to be or not, you're in a war. That's the time and the place you're born into. You are in a war. And so we have to think that comfort is a luxury that most of the time not only we cannot afford, but we can't make our priority. Comfort and ease cannot be our priority because we're living in wartime. And being a part of the seed of the woman's work in the world has to be at the top of our list of priorities. Otherwise, we're missing it. And by the way, at the end of Revelation, when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me, you know, this goes back to a model of looking at life that's like this. You remember in the, uh, not so much today, but in times past, if one kingdom fought another kingdom and one kingdom wins and the king rides in, what does he do to the people who helped him in his cause? When he rides in his victory, ride, you know what he does? He rewards those that were on his side. That is the picture of Revelation 22. I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me meaning I want you to participate in the war and I want you to do so in a way that I can reward you for that participation when I return. That's the deal. That's the picture. We live in a time of war. It is a great adventure. We'll miss some meals. We'll suffer some defeats. Get over it. That's life. That's where we're at. Don't be surprised when you encounter opposition. And guys, for most of us, this is small potatoes, whatever that opposition looks like. You're a Christian, you try and do right, and somebody talks bad about you. You're a Christian and you try and do right, you share the gospel with someone and they laugh at you or they tell others you're weird. Whatever that looks like for you and me, I don't know. Don't be surprised. Paul tells Timothy, in this world you're going to have persecution because of the side, the army that you belong to. You're going to have persecution of some sort, so don't be surprised, expect it. Uh, this is my, my hobby horse. Uh, read your Bibles. Don't just read your Bibles. Memorize your Bibles. Meditate in your Bibles. I say this for this reason. In the spiritual warfare that you, or I, that you and I are in, the truth is both your defense and it is your only weapon. 
the truth is your only means of defense and it's your only weapon. If you read Ephesians 6, which is kind of the key New Testament text about spiritual warfare, if you read there, everything except the last one about prayer, which we'll mention, is about the truth in the Scriptures. The Gospel is the truth about Christ and our condition, etc. The helmet of salvation. Anyway, gird your loins with truth. The truth is the way you defend yourself against deception, imitation. The truth is how you advance Christ's cause as you tell the truth to others. Guys, if you don't know the truth... You're worthless in the war. You're casually waiting to happen and you can't do anything. You have no gun. You have no sword. You have no shield. If you don't know the truth, you're impotent in this war. You must read your Bible. You must memorize your Bible. You've got to be ready to tell the truth to yourself. Remind yourself and tell the truth to others. Paul ends that passage in Ephesians 6 by, by saying, praying at all times in the Spirit. Pray. Prayer is this, it's a big deal in the spiritual world. You know, you and I have no ability to control another person's heart. You and I can't make anyone think or believe anything else. But if I go to God in prayer, God has the ability to change hearts. In fact, he says in Proverbs, the heart of the king is like water in God's hand. He can do with it whatever he wants. If you and I want to see spiritual warfare where Christ's cause is being advanced, pray. Pray for yourselves, pray for your family, pray for the church, pray for the people you want to share Christ with, ask the Lord to give you opportunities, open doors to share the gospel with them. Pray. That's the way that Ephesians 6 passage ends. Pray. Support Christians who are, what we might say, are on the front lines of the the battle in the sense of persecution and opposition. This is why our church supports, sorry, supports and supports Voice of the Martyrs. You know, it's an institution that's, that's, by the way, I think this is neat. It's It's out of Oklahoma, the United States. You know, an agency that was founded by a guy in East Europe 50 years or so ago is centered out of Oklahoma. And this little group, they, they do nothing. Their goal is simply to support the persecuted church. And when we give and when we pray to Voice of the Martyrs, we're doing just that. We're supporting those who are in direct conflict, persecution, opposition around the world. That's why Voice of the Martyrs exists. That's why we support them financially and pray for them. And we need to do that. And remember this, whatever the losses here look like, And there will be some real losses in your life. There are real battles. There are real losses. You and I will experience real losses, real setbacks, real disappointments. Remember this. Revelation 22, that's the end of the warfare. That's the end of the story. Jesus does return. He brings His rewards with Him. He rules heaven and earth again. He wraps this world up eventually, starts a new one. And that's where we're going. So it's not as if the future of the battle is uncertain. The death blow has been dealt at the resurrection. The will hasn't been fully discharged, but it will be. And Jesus Christ is giving you and I today the opportunity to participate in what He's doing on the earth. And He's giving people, Peter tells us elsewhere, the opportunity to believe and join His side of the war. So we live in heady days. World War II, spiritually, so to speak, it's still going on. It's still going on. And the spiritual war, it's been with us since Genesis 3.15. It's going on until Genesis 20, verse 10. We're a part of it. It's the world in which we live. We must be prepared. 
We can't be naive. We can't be Neville Chamberlains. We can't be Bilbo Baggins. We've got to be informed. We've got to have our head out of the sand and engage in the war that we're a part of, born into whether we like it or not. We're born for the times God's put us in. Let's pray. Jesus, you have borne the cost of this battle and the sin and death of both our parents and ourselves on the cross. We are eternally grateful that you've done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Lord Jesus, thanks that you not only covered our sins, but you've destroyed the power of the enemy. Lord, worse days are coming for the earth in which John tells us in Revelation that the, the dragon, Satan, comes to the earth with great wrath knowing he has but a short time. And yet, Lord, we know his future and end and we know our future in you. God Almighty, Jesus in heaven, fill us with your spirit. Help us to participate in this warfare as those who know you and long to serve you, to be known by you so that you can say, well done, in that future day when you come to reveal yourself as King of kings and Lord of lords and reward those who have served in your army and in these battles. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.